This episode of The Green Rush is brought to you by Heffernan Insurance Brokers. For a long time, cannabis companies have been shut out of many financial and insurance opportunities. That has now changed as cannabis companies have an option that can change their company's bottom line. Berkshire Hathaway is exclusively partnered with Heffernan Insurance Brokers, and the first work comp dividend program for businesses in the cannabis industry is now available nationwide. Rates that are filed in states across the U.S. can receive up to 40% of your premium back. So if you're an MSO that would like to have the potential to receive premium back on your work comp, give Kevin Tarango at Heffernan Insurance Brokers a ring at 415-699-2022 or go to hefcan.com. That's H-E-F-F-C-A-N-N.com. Support Heffernan Insurance Brokers' efforts to strengthen the cannabis community and revolutionize how cannabis companies buy work comp insurance. Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Ann and Nick are back with a new episode with special guest Jeremy Burke, cannabis journalist and the founder of the Cultivated Newsletter, which just launched earlier this year and that covers the cannabis industry. Jeremy joins us to discuss his new newsletter and to talk us through some of the biggest stories within the space, including what's happening in New York, California, and Canada. If you haven't already, make sure you sign up for Jeremy's Cultivated Newsletter at cultivated.news. It's a great way to follow all the important updates within the industry through a more personable and human lens and without the strict focus on big business that some other publications will emphasize. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Cultivated founder, Jeremy Burke. Jeremy Burke, you're you're back on the Green Rush. I think it's been several years since we last chatted with you at Benzinga. Um, it's great to have you on. How's everything going? It, it has been several years. Um, everything's going really good. I just uh, you know I left my full time role at Insider and I've struck out on my own. So it's exciting and uh, a little bit scary at the same time. But no, things are good. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. We want to cover all of that stuff. Um, and, and just kind of to remind our listeners, because because it has been so many years, and we've got new listeners since since the last time we did it. You know, let's jump in with like, what first got you started in, in covering cannabis? And, you know, because that wasn't your original beat when you when you got into journalism, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, no, it wasn't. So, um, yeah, I mean, I always heard the story, like, if you kind of asked me when I was 12 years old, I always, you know, told my parents and, you know, any adult who would listen that I wanted to be a journalist when I grew up. So, um, it's one of those situations where life works out in, in you know, a funny and, and good way. Um, so long story short, I, after I graduated college, um, uh, you know, I took a job at a small travel publication called Atlas Obscura that was then acquired by Slate. Um, after I spent about, I think four or five months there, um, I wanted to get kind of a, you know, full introduction into what being a digital journalist in the 21st century is. So I wanted to get like a real breaking news job, um, a role at Insider, which was then just Business Insider popped up. Um, that was in late 2015. And so 
really, I was covering the run up to the 2016 election. Uh, it was, you know, a really good education in journalism. It was really fast paced. It wasn't very fun. Um, it was a pretty sort of toxic environment. I quickly realized I didn't want to be a political reporter. Um, so I rotated. I mean, across. 2016 was a tough hang for just yeah, getting into as politics. a 23-year-old, you know, <laughs> trying to figure out like, do I want to do yeah. this for the next 30 years? I was like, absolutely not. Anyways, um, it was a good introduction though, and I, and I learned a lot in the job, which was useful, but it wasn't wasn't fun every day. Um, after that, I rotated across a few different desks. I covered science, and environment. I covered um, venture capital innovation. And at the time, um, you know, Insider was staffing up pretty aggressively with, you know, very smart people and, and recruiting. And um, I had no interest in, you know, finance at the time, but they had hired and, and brought in some really interesting finance editors. So um, I thought it'd just be a good opportunity to learn from them. So at the time, I just put my hand up, I transferred teams, you know, I covered like nuts and bolts stuff like bank earnings and learned how to read a balance sheet and just kind of like, learn the language of, of finance. And, and that was a good education. From there, I wrote a one-off story. Um, I think in, you know, maybe late 2016, early 2017, it was a court case that Harborside, a dispensary in Oakland, uh, which is now a much larger company, had won. And I got just a ton more feedback from that than any story I had written. So, um, I, you know, I felt like I tapped a little bit of a nerve there. Um, so I started writing a little, about it a little bit more, a little bit more, to the point where it became half my time. Um, and then, you know, I, I just figured this was around the end of 2017 um, to pitch, you know, our higher ups on, on starting this as a vertical. And at the time it was a little bit out of left field, like our editors were like, we didn't really think we'd have a cannabis reporter or a cannabis vertical, especially from a financial perspective. Um, but they were open-minded and, and they gave me a shot. Um, they, they, you know, they told me to prove out the model for a quarter to, bringing in enough subscribers, you know, to Insider and, and the rest is history. It really worked. Um, you know, it was a big opportunity for someone like me who is in their 20s. And, and you know, it's hard to make your mark as a writer. Um, you can kind of compete for scoops with people who are a decade older than you on things like Donald Trump and Uber at the time. You know, those are huge <laughs> stories. Or you can zig where others zag and, um, you know, find your own sweet spot. And, and you know, that the rest is history, as I said. <laughs> So, I mean, it's interesting that um, everything's a business, obviously, right? And the fact that um, it, it really tasked you with almost a sales job, too. Like, yes, go out, learn all of this stuff, research, start reporting on it. Um, but it needs to get clicks, right? It needs to pay the bills. Yes, media is a business, uh, to your point. And, you know, especially at Insider, you're trained not really to divorce your own work and your own writing from the needs of the business. Yeah. You know, now it wasn't, it didn't all just fall on me, right? There's a sort of a robust sales arm that like handled the actual sure. hard stuff. Like I just had to do my thing, but um, no, I, I, you know, paid a lot of attention to, am I bringing new subscribers in? Like, you know, is this going to be good for the organization's bottom line? Like, am I actually going to be a value add or is this just sort of a cost center? So, um, you know, that's the way I kind of thought through it and, you know, hope to say that, you know, my thoughts are vindicated a little bit because it worked. So a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> I mean, Insider really was like one of the first like business publications to take it seriously and like follow the money. And, um, you know, I, I just think it was a really interesting time back then. You've now um, branched out from like the the corporate side of media 
um, and you're working for yourself um, and you have a Substack called Cultivated uh, that you've started. So before we, we get into Cultivated, can you tell our listeners about what, the, what Substack is and what that community is like? Yeah, sure. So Substack is basically, you know, for for independent writers, um, it's almost sort of like a creator economy model. Um, it provides the back end. So it takes the guesswork out of everything. Not that this is an ad for a Substack, but um, basically, you know, I can... Why not? Let's with, make it that. Right. But, I, you know, I, I'm, I, you know, the jury's still out on whether uh, it's going to work for me long term, but right now it's great. Um, and, you know, basically you can just type in whatever you want. Um, every Substack, it gives you options to change the color font, whatever, but it, but it, 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 you know, you don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about the design element of it. Um, it's the software is all sort of integrated, integrated into it. You don't have to know WordPress or HTML coding. Um, at the same time, it's also a platform to get subscribers to your content. Um, my newsletter right now is free. I'm, I'm just focused on building an audience, but Substack handles all the hard part of, you know, they, they integrate with Square so you can build subscribers. And basically it allows writers to sort of leave their full-time roles and and do something a little bit entrepreneurial in this sort of new newsletter economy we're in um the other thing Substack offers which which i found really useful is a recommendation engine which means that um writers with big followings can recommend my newsletter which is actually a really good subscriber acquisition tool right because if someone's reading you know a very well engaged newsletter and they say oh cultivated by jeremy is great like i'm gonna get a lot of people just from that sort of um, reader writer connection, that level of trust that that a lot of these solo writers have. So um, that's like a really useful aspect of Substack. It, it's pretty new. Um, you know, I think the company started in 2016 and it's really sort of taking this kind of creator model. Like if you are a known writer at a big publication and you have a brand, it provides tools for you to monetize that in a way that you probably aren't getting at a big mainstream publication, right? Like you can stay at, at Insider and maybe transfer up to even the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, or salaries are a little bit higher. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, you still are working purely for a salary rather than, um, you know, building a business based on the work you do, which, you know, at the end of the day could offer a lot more money, <laughs> you know, just yeah. be frank about that. Yeah. No, of course. I mean, yeah. we all, we all need money. So, and we are big proponents of paying for journalism. That is, we have definitely, uh, that is a mantra we have here. Um, how has your approach to reporting changed or your voice changed? Because the way that you have it now, or uh, this is my interpretation and you'll correct sure. me. So you're taking news of the day, you're take like the Oklahoma, you know, uh, not passing yeah. kind of thing. So you, you kind of lay out what the news is, but then you give your take, Jer's take. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I guess you're like straddling that line between hard reporting and then bringing your institutional knowledge, which is, I mean, you're a veteran in the space. I mean, you're, are you even 30 and you're a veteran in the Okay. So, you know, you, so what is, how, how is that either freed you up or opened your, your, your voice a little bit? Like, I guess, talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this, this may be to my own detriment that I'm sort of just making decisions on the fly. So I want to, you know, caveat my answer with that. <laughs> yeah. However, um, that's what industry, this industry is. No one knows what the hell they're doing. Right. It, it's, yeah, exactly. I'm shooting from the hip a little bit to use a terrible metaphor, but, um, you know, at a mainstream publication, um, 
especially insider, you know, the, the, there is traditional journalistic norms like the view from nowhere. You want to be purely objective in your coverage, which in my view is extremely important if you are a big mainstream publication. Like at the end of the day, your byline is sort of subsumed to the brand, right? Insider wants to protect their brand. They want to be this neutral arbiter of information as most mainstream publications do. Obviously, you know, this isn't sort of like a, a lecture on media, but there are partisan media. However, you know, that's not sort of the field that Insider played in. Um, what being a solo writer, I think, frees you up to do is, you know, if, if you have a track record of credibility, you can sort of offer your take. And I think what that does is it creates a much more direct and personal connection between writer and reader, because the incentive is not only to tell the truth, but to tell the truth through my lens, right? Like that's what people are subscribing for. If they just wanted the pure, you know, unvarnished stuff, they would look at a spreadsheet and look at a balance sheet, right? But what I hope people subscribe to me for is not only the information I'm servicing, but what I think about it, like based on the history I have and the credibility I have covering the space, where I see it going, where I see it changing and not having an editor, frankly, just frees you up to do that a little bit. Um, at the same time, you know, I have to be sort of very clear that, uh, you know, I'm still a reporter, right? Like, I, I'm not a columnist. Um, I, you know, I don't have an agenda. And I, I try to be extremely clear that, like, my only agenda is is making something interesting to read and, and hopefully doing a little bit of the watchdog job of journalism, because the industry, I believe, sorely needs it. And it's good for the ecosystem. Um, what it doesn't mean is I don't have an agenda about which company, you know, I want to win the market. You know, I, I very clearly and very transparently do not have financial stakes in any of these companies. I'm not investing. I don't day trade stocks. I don't do any of that. Like my income is solely tied to my credibility about writing about this. Um, you know, all that being said, it's like, I just think that the subtech model just allows you to bend the rules. And like, we're in this kind of new world of journalism where, um, you know, people trust mainstream outlets a little less, but they do trust individual writers a little bit more. And there are tools, digital tools to allow and, and facilitate that reader writer connection. Um, and that's really what I'm trying to lean into right now. Um, you know, it may be to my detriment, like, I don't know, in a year's time, if I'm giving too many takes, I may get less scoops, and I'll have to kind of adjust. But right now, um, you know, things are pretty good. No, but I think you brought up a really solid point there about kind of what is driving the the erosion of trust in media is that, you know, because of the, the changing business models of everything, you know, like, there's there's gaslighting mm. that, from my view that I feel it can happen from from the, from the major media institutions. So getting that trust with um, specific writers and following them, I think, really opens up a lot there. And so, you know, expanding that more into what you're doing specifically at Cultivated, you know, what are the types of stories that you're looking to to really cover there that, you know, maybe aren't getting the, the same type of coverage at an insider, a Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal or something like that? Yeah, look, I, I think one one thing I'm really trying to do and be transparent about is, you know, when I think of the, the multi-state operator story, and you know, I, I'm sure all your listeners are sort of educated about the cannabis industry, but uh, multi-state operators are big US cannabis companies that, that cultivate and sell cannabis in the US. Um, and they often work across multiple states. So, you know, at, at Insider, like just the fact, you know, a couple of years ago, just the fact that these companies existed, the fact that they're pursuing M&A, strategic M&A, you know, the fact that they were growing, um, that was an interesting story, right? Like how the executives are positioning the company, sort of the corporate level news was interesting. I think now, um, you know, just transparently, you know, a lot of these companies haven't really done great jobs. There's a lot of 
difficulties into operating the cannabis industry. Um, but there's also a lot of, you know, anger and, and resentment about what they're doing. And so um, where my coverage has shifted a little bit, I'll say, you know, at Insider, I paid a lot of attention to what was happening in the earnings calls and, and mm -hmm. what the CEOs were saying. And, um, you know, a little bit, you know, one, one, of, one of my goals and one of my remits was to kind of break M&A news. And I would try really hard to do that. Now, you know, I think the, the labor story is actually more interesting to me. It's how are the workers getting treated? Like, are the products safe? Are they, you know, getting to consumers and to medical patients in the right way? Um, you know, are the workers paid fairly? Are layoffs handled fairly? And so those are things that wouldn't necessarily, you know, wouldn't necessarily be my remit at Insider while I could write those stories. Um, oftentimes, like our readers were investors who really just wanted corporate news. Now, um, I'm sort of trying to facilitate that connection and show like, hey, if you're working at these companies, like, talk to me and, and tell me what it's like. If it's good, we'll write that. If it's bad, we'll write that. Um, with the idea also being, you know, this should be helpful to executives of these companies as well. Like they should know what workers are thinking. And oftentimes, you know, executives, um, you know, don't have the full picture of what's going on inside their companies even. And so um, I want to be able to offer that as well. And all that being said, like, I'm definitely going to be paying attention to executives and what they're saying, and hopefully getting interviews as my audience gets bigger. Um, but like, that's just one kind of example of where my reporting priorities have shifted a little bit. Um, and, and that's where I'll kind of be leaning into for sure. I mean, it's, it's really important, though, because kind of what you're saying is like, you're adding more of the human element into it. And especially when you talk about labor, like, that's really prescient right now, there's layoffs, if the industry is not in a, in a great place. Um, right. but there still are important stories to tell both on the human side and also on the non-public company side. Um, right. You know, going back a couple of years, like it seemed like if you were in a public company, like you had a hard time getting coverage. And, and so it's nice to hear that there's maybe more room being made for, for those non-large MSOs. And, and look, like, like to your point, one of the things I can do now is like, you know, like I, I am a proud and open consumer of cannabis, right? Like I can kind of write about like products I liked and I couldn't really do that at Business Insider, you know? Um, like if a, if a startup is, re is releasing cool new like edible or, or something, I can try it and I can write about it. I can say, this is awesome. Like I really enjoyed watching The Lord of the Rings after eight, you know, like I can do stuff that's fun. Like it's cannabis. We're supposed to have a little bit of fun too with this. And, and that's something I'm really excited to do as well on the, on the positive and happy side. Um, I can try products, go to events, like go to consumption lounges and just do things that are cool and fun and write about them and, in, in, you know, hopefully in an engaging way. Uh, you talk about, you know, some of the, your old beat of like MSOs and the, and the quarterly report grind, which we totally feel the pain there. Um, <laughs> but you know, if you're, if you're looking at some of these MSOs now, versus where they were, there seems to be there, you know, we were talking about this before this like land grab, like, and, and if, in everybody's, you know, investor presentation, you had the, the map, right. Of like, here's where we are, you know, and that seems to be, um, I mean, out of fashion, certainly in the last two years, but what do you make of some of this, the, the exodus in California, like slang and true leave and cure leave. And even Jerry Garcia's brand is leaving the state. Is it a market correction? Like we needed this or is it a sign of something else? You know, I, I like, I want to caveat my answer with, I am not a financial analyst, nor am I an economist, right? So, so my take is going to be sort of based on it, it's anecdotal and it's based on 
who I speak with. It's it's not sort of <laughs> very rigorous and database. Um, but w- what I will say from people I speak with that are smarter than me about this stuff, uh, California, you know, messed up their cannabis policy, right? They allowed, you know, way too many people to come to the market with way too strict regulations. Um, and I think it's sort of, you know, beyond the cannabis story, um, in, in my view, and not to get political, it's sort of a story of, you know, when big business meets sort of very progressive legislature, right? Like everyone's aligned, like we want cannabis to be legal, we want it to be a business, but the strategies, and I think California's really good case study into doing it are wildly divergent, right? Um, you know, big, big companies generally want limited licenses. They want to sort of monopolize or oligopolize. Um, you know, they want less regulations, less taxation. Um, and they want, if there is taxation, they want those costs passed more onto consumers than onto them. Um, you know, California, and I think we're seeing this increasingly in New York right now, um, you know, they see legal cannabis as a giant revenue generation tool. So oftentimes that means, you know, you're creating new bureaucracies, you're using cannabis legalization um, as a tool to sort of uh, uh, not necessarily fix, but to alleviate, you know, long-term racist policies and problems that have persisted in our economy, uh, of which cannabis is sometimes a square peg that fits in a round hole. I don't think it is like a silver bullet on that side. So um, I think that's one of the big pieces. And in California specifically, like the, just the regulations are impossible. When I talk to small scale growers, it's much cheaper for them to just, you know, deal with the risk of selling illegally than to try and set up a legal business. They have to have a lease and sit on it for months at a time before um, they can actually get a license and, <clears throat> excuse me, grow plants and sell them. Uh, and so, you know, there are just all these pieces that, in my view, are a little bit nonsensical that that might have been um theoretically rational when they're put in place but you know years into this make absolutely no sense and make doing business extremely hard um and i think at, at the end of the day you know the persistence of the illicit market is a casualty of all that um and that's why companies are leaving because you know regular consumers don't want to pay taxes they want stronger products that might be offered in the legal market and it makes it extremely hard and extremely cost intensive for you know compliant legal companies to compete um, and, and so that, you know, that was a bit of a general answer, but, but that's, you know, what, what I see in the space. And, uh, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, New York kind of runs the risk of, of repeating that a little bit in, in, in some of the decisions they're making. Yeah. That's what I, I wanted to touch on next. Cause you brought up New York and the illicit market and, you know, Ann, Ann's in California, I'm in Arizona. We, we, you know, go back to New York every once in a while, but you're there on the ground every day. And so, you know, I, what I'm hearing is that, you know, the streets smell like weed everywhere you go up and down and, and it, the cost of cannabis is ridiculous. Um, but people are still obviously getting it because the black market has been so successful and so accessible for so long um, in, in that area. You know, what is it like that you're seeing on the ground there? Is that, and is, is there anything that New York is getting right about it um, right now? Well, yeah. And, and look, it, it's the jury is still out, right? It's much too early to say whether New York has gotten this right or wrong, right? But, you know, I'll use an example to kind of illustrate that point, right? Uh, I live in downtown Brooklyn, um, you know, very dense, highly populated area. Many of my friends live in downtown Brooklyn and there is, or, or in the surrounding neighborhoods, and there, there are four illegal dispensaries just, you know, within probably a five or six block radius of my apartment. My friends that consume cannabis and shop there did not even realize that they were illegal until I told them. <laughs> so, you know, 
that is an encapsulation. Did that stop the- them though? <laughs> Not right. Like that. That is the encapsulation of, right. of the issue in New York. Right? Is that you know, on the one hand, they do not want to reinforce cannabis, right? They made this legal as a social justice tool, like New York really took that to heart. And that is a noble and useful goal to doing this. Um, So what they're not going to do is recriminalize cannabis sales. At the same time, they've made such an onerous system to get licenses. And they've, you know, sort of preferentially opened them up to so called social equity applicants, which are people who you know, have convictions or a close family member convicted under previous state laws in New York state. And so um, all that means to say is that it's been two years. Um, A lot of these, you know, I I believe at this time, um, it's the end of March, 2023, and not even one of these social equity licensed stores is open yet. Um, And so it's just taking way too long when, you know, at the end of the day, they did have MSOs there who, we're already selling to the medical market who could have kind of flipped the switch. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one side of the coin. And like for, for general consumers, people are like, why the hell is it taking so long? At the same time, what the state is trying to do is good. Like 10 years ago when Colorado was legalizing cannabis, you know, social justice was like barely a piece of the conversation in New York. It's the whole conversation. And in my view, and, and you know, this is my bias coming in even more so than job creation and economic growth, you know, Reversing racist policing is the ultimate goal of the legalization process of legalization movement. Like that is the lodestar. And I think New York has done a really good job in following that. But at the same time, there needs to be a little bit more business acumen in, in letting these companies actually start and open because they're just bound with red tape. You know, there's no stores open yet. Um, there's, and there's all these sort of problems. Like there's a big supply gut with glut, excuse me, with weed that frankly is going bad in upstate New York. And like these companies don't know what to do with it. That's going to get diverted to the illicit market. Um, You know, and so there's all these problems that are just kneecapping the start of the industry. And if the state doesn't figure it out, then that goal of, you know, (laughs) that North star of, of reversing racist policing, it's going to fail. Right. Because if the industry isn't making people money, if um, these social equity applicants that the state wants to help aren't participating in economic growth, if it's all getting reverted to the illicit market, then um, why have these goals in the first place? So um, it's a it's a really difficult and, and thorny issue, and and it's not to say the state won't work through it, but right now it's not off to a good start. All right, I'm going to put you on the spot then, and I'm going to give you a promotion. You're going to be Kathy Hochul's drug czar. Oh, <laughs> your your first you have. You have to give her one suggestion. You just I don't out. think he wants that job, Nick. Did you hear that? <laughs> yeah. I don't think anybody wants that job, but Jerry's got it for, for, for this yeah. question. You, you, your first fix. You, you talked about rever- the, the the reversing the policies. You talked about the glut, the supply glut, the illicit market, all these things. If if you had Kathy Hochul's ear or even Eric Adams' ear for for that matter, you know, what's the one thing that you would tell them? We need to do this first to help this market. I would. I would let. And this is. This is something I've made up, and I, I'm sure there's going to be a million lawyers and policymakers smarter than me who who say this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. I would send a, a task force, a regulatory task force, around to every single legal dispensary in the city, as much as you can capture, and I would say, either we're going to confiscate your products and fine you, or you can pay us to have a conditional license to sell illegally until you get your regulations in order. Um, and, and I don't know what the cost of that would be, but it'd be a, re- it, a, it'd be a revenue generation tool for the state's cannabis agency, the OCM B 
all of a sudden you'd have all this legal weed. And now the risk with that, as much of this weed is untested and the, and the labeling is inaccurate. Yeah. So there's a, there's a massive risk there, but people are still buying it and using it. And if there's a massive public health problem with it, you know, it would have revealed there's no itself. Recourse. Yeah. Right. Well, well, uh, the point the point is, is that like if, if there's, you know, if there is sort of a public health issue from pesticides in these products, you know, um, yes, it's a risk, but it hasn't revealed itself yet two years into this with all these stores proliferating. I imagine it won't. Um, so I think that's the lesser of two evils. And that gets a consumers spending their money in, in a taxed way. It's a revenue generation tool and B. It gives these sellers an opportunity to enter the illegal market um, without sort of, you know, <laughs> you know, without sort of going through the, the entire bureaucratic process, which is expensive, time consuming and really difficult to comply with. Um, you know, there's probably a lot of things we're not seeing with that idea. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is people are buying these products anyways. And, you know, I think if there was an outbreak of some issue, uh, you know, you could use epidemiology to figure out which store was selling the tainted product, you could yeah. turn down. Um, like, like, you know, it's the, the, the New York state government has that capacity and ability to do that. It's a sophisticated, you know, sophisticated right. organization. So that's what I'd say. And I, I think at the end of the day, like they just need to be selling more illegal weed than they are. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, and they're leaving a lot of tax revenue on the table and they're actually, you know, fostering, an environment that's that's easy for for unregulated or criminal actors to play in um and that's not what they're trying to do and that's not healthy all right well we'll send that up to uh to kathy <laughs> yeah and, uh, please give me your recommendation yeah <laughs> oh my god can you imagine what yeah that the headlines there um but very interesting uh you are uh while you live in brooklyn you are um a native canadian um where are you you're from toronto yeah okay um and <laughs> what's going on up there <laughs> yeah i mean I, you know I'll, I'll caveat my answer with i, I haven't um you know the, the canadian story in cannabis i think has gotten much less interesting to me over time um than it was in 2018 you know right after yeah. the country legalized i think um you know Again, Canada was the first G8 nation to legalize cannabis. So they were the first to do this from a federal level. Obviously, there are going to be mistakes, but, um, you know, they're, they're reviewing or, or they were just reviewing a few weeks ago the, uh, the Cannabis Act, the bill that legalized cannabis, and people were offering suggestions. One of the things that I thought was, was really interesting um, that it kind of explains the mess of Canada's cannabis industry is that, you know, Trudeau had said, you know, during one of those review hearings that the reason or, or in a press conference afterward, the reason they legalized cannabis in Canada was to get rid of teen use. It was not to create a new industry. It was not to create jobs. And so he, he says in his view, um, you know, it's time for the country to get on board with cannabis as a new economy and as a job creation tool. And it's time to remove some regulations and help that happen. Now, that being said, like there's a lot of criticism about the liberals plan to do this. Um, and, I, you know, I, I I'm not super educated on the finer details, but um, what I've been hearing is there's a lot of complaints. But I think that 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 sort of makes sense. It's like you, you, you know, you have these companies like Canopy Growth that, you know, once 
cannabis was legalized, it grew really rapidly because they had access to institutional investors in Canada that U.S. cannabis companies don't like to list on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And, you know, big pension funds, if they you know were willing to do so, could invest in them and fuel this growth. But they grew way too fast. They created so much enough, you know, more capacity than there was to sell to in Canada itself. Um, and they struck too early on these international expansion opportunities, like they were buying up properties in Portugal and in South America um, with the idea that it'd be like three years before these countries legalize cannabis and that's not come to fruition. And so now, um, you know, a lot of big cannabis companies are in this giant retrenchment phase. I mean, canopy growth, you know, the most symbolic thing recently shut down, you know, their, their Smith's, Smith's Falls facility. Um, and that is, again, you know, a perfect symbol of, of kind of what went wrong in Canada. You know, all that being said, like there is some really positive aspects of Canada's cannabis policy. Like, you know, five years ago, uh, you know, legal market penetration was only around 30 percent. It's well upwards of 50 percent now. So like things are working on the policy side, but on the industry side, um, it's proven to be an extremely difficult place to make money um, other than, you know, kind of like the early wave of, of investment bankers who you know, <laughs> took companies public yeah, way too early and, 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 yeah, <laughs> yeah. and made their fees and left. Um, those are the people who made money, but not the necessarily sustainable industry folks right. um, are, are still struggling. You brought up a really interesting um, point about when, you know, in 2018, Canada was really an interesting story for you that, that that's kind of fallen off. And, you know, because you've been covering this industry for a long time, you've seen those ups and downs, you've seen like how things have evolved from interesting to mundane to maybe interesting again and all that. But can you talk about like just the, those ups and downs and those shifts of like what is interesting about the industry and what's not over these last like three or four years? Yeah, I think at the very beginning, um, and, and very beginning meaning like 2017. So right. you know, yeah, it's still so years ago. Um, right, right. So, um, but but just the fact that these companies existed and we're, we're hiring people and, and we're real companies. Like that was just interesting to people. They're like, holy shit, you know, there are these big cannabis companies, law firms are working with them, accounting firms are working with them. Like society- IR, PR companies are working exactly, with them. Like, right, like society is starting to normalize this thing. And, and that was interesting, right? The people who chose to do this, like the human side is interesting. And also like the corporate side, like I was very interested in like, you know, I, I you know, I was thinking about, um, you know, the early days of the banking industry, right? Like, these are the people who could be titans of this brand new industry, and it's being created before our eyes. Like, yeah. that's a fascinating story. Um, you know, that has changed. And I think part of it is just as a journalist, you do get biased towards negativity, somewhat. And, and that's something I have to be careful of. But oftentimes, when people want to talk to a journalist, um, that aren't necessarily trying to sell you on a story are, are doing it because they have information to share that they want to be publicized. Right. Um, so I think over time, excitement gave way to, uh, you know, a little bit of that negativity, right. Where people were like, okay, you know, these companies aren't treating people well, uh, they're losing people's money. They're being cagey about their accounting. And so, um, the story went from like, wow, look at these companies to like, you know, their accounting practices are bad to their laying off workers to, you know, they're retrenching from markets. Why is this happening? Um, and I think what's really interesting about that is not to lay all the blame at the executives. It's like policymakers have not helped them, you know, any stretch of the way. Like there, there are certain pieces 
of, of regulation that still exists, like the 280E tax, not to get too wonky, but it's it's just an, an insane hamper on companies making margins that are useful, right? To, to not only grow, but to pay people and, and pay people fairly. Um, so I think the and story, to make enough money to be able to reinvest in your business. Like that's exactly not right. Like, here. Like, it's just, exactly. yeah. And, and, it, and it, it creates all these sort of ways where you, you, you know, companies have to play on um, not, you know, in, in sketchier markets, let's say like the people willing to lend, maybe will lend money at usurious rates and, and they may, you know, put, put structures on the business that no other normal business would ever say yes to. Um, and it makes it really hard to do that. Like so, the world's so, worst shark tank. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's a good, that's a good point. But anyways, like all that being said is, is the story has shifted for me into being, that's what's very interesting. It's like um, on the wonky side, it's like, how can policymakers fix this? Um, how can companies possibly make money in the situation? And um, if they can't, like, are they controlling what they can control well, which is offering good products and treating workers well? Um, and sometimes the answer to that question is yes, and sometimes it's no. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, I think the press's job is to inject skepticism um, into the media, into the ecosystem, into the industry's ecos- ecosystem. Um, and that's what I'm trying to do. And, and I think that it's useful. That being said, like, you know, my personal long-term belief in the industry hasn't wavered, right? Um, I think it's in a rough patch and, and a lot of what I cover might be negative, but long-term, like this will be a huge industry. There are millions of people around the world who want to consume and buy this legally. And it's still exciting. It's just um, sometimes you have to engage in tough conversations to, to make that a reality. So, right. Um, I mean, there's I more legal it. weed being sold now than literally ever before. So right. like every single day. It, yeah. How can it not be a market, yeah. a thriving like financial market? But yeah. yeah. So uh, we are of the same belief right now. Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's a rough patch. Um, so as um, you know, and it's your job to like poke holes and kick the tires and and do all that stuff. So in your role as um sideline observer of this industry or a participant too but like um any crazy wild wonky stories that either you have about you know reporting on this beat Mm. like (laughs) and you don't need to name names or brands or anything like kooky ceo who did this one thing or like is there a story that you really wanted to get and it and it didn't happen for whatever reason like any any fun things like that like we're all journalism nerds here yeah, I, I um I want to be very careful that it's a small industry and I I, I yeah. need to maintain access and relationships. It's part of my job. Of I want to be very careful about that. Um on a general level, I will say that um you know, I, I'm I'm young ish. I'm you know, I'm 30, right? Um and uh uh part of what has been surprising to me is the thinness of skin of, of some people in the industry who, you know, are 20, 25 years older than me and, and control budgets of billions of dollars and have teams of thousands of people. Um, you know, they should not be afraid of me. If I was in their position, I would not be. And I don't think they are. But at the end of the day, they, they seem sometimes personally affronted when I report critical things about their companies. Um, that is my job. And uh, it's surprising. Like, I, I don't think that the CEO of Goldman Sachs would be blocking reporters on Twitter. 
you know, despite what they write about Goldman Sachs. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that is something. You have I'll some say. weird people who block you. I follow your Twitter. Well, look, I, like, like I, I, I'm trying to, I'm very clear in my newsletter that not everything yeah. I write is going to make you delighted yeah. and happy. Um, but it's going to be truthful. And, or if it's not truthful, like I'm outlining where it is my take and, and one person's perspective on something, um, which I hope is useful because it's, you know, informed by years. It's of an educated perspective. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, so that is something that's surprising. I think that, um, you know, I'll, I'll make a broader point about in, in emerging industries, oftentimes companies, and this is not just cannabis, this is, you know, cryptocurrency or whatever, companies kind of expect the media and, and members of the media who are interested in this industry to cheerlead for them. Um, that is not what we're here to do. If we were, you know, <laughs> we'd be in a different role. And, at, and, and I think that it's a healthier ecosystem, like you should want some scrutiny. And I think, you know, part of the deal with capitalism is if you are trying to make a lot of money and if you're trying to do a lot of things that, that you know, change the world, which a lot of cannabis CEOs like to talk about, that's going to come with scrutiny. Um, it's going to come with a heavy dose of scrutiny and, and you should be prepared for it. Um, you should take it personally. And then, you know, to answer your question more specifically, uh, the cannabis industry is full of crazy characters, many of whom are charlatans, uh, many of whom have, you know, lied through their teeth to me multiple times, even when I called them out in it. Um, and not to name names, but, you know, I can direct you some past stories where I've written about that, which is just, uh, you know, it's a vibrant, <laughs> vibrant place full of colorful characters. And um, yeah, this is a public podcast. I should. You'll see a lot yeah. of characters. <laughs> but also we're employing the, I mean, we media train our clients all the time and we're like, we're employing the just be silent and let him continue talking <laughs> like model. Which, which, which Let's I'm see what at. he says next. That's <laughs> <Much laughs> my own detriment. We won't, I'm probably, we won't yeah. do that to you. No, we won't. <laughs> but, um, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy, you've been, you've been really gracious with your time. I got one more question before for you before we let you go. You know, you we're, we talked about we're recording this at the end of March 2023. You know, looking through the 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 next nine months or even the next twelve months, year, couple of years, what has you most excited about what where the industry is going? We've talked a lot about like you know what what isn't the industry getting right, but you know you're, you like you said you're still positive on on where, what this industry can bring. And so what what has you excited? What has you feeling that positivity? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, one, I think, like, despite everything we talked about in New York, like the fact that New York City, my, you know, adopted hometown is legalizing cannabis is super exciting. Um, it brings the industry to me in a way that it wasn't before I used to have to kind of fly or drive to it. Um, so that on a personal level is exciting. I think the second piece of that is, you know, the East Coast sensibility that New York is going to bring to the industry. I think it's just a super interesting place to start a cannabis brand. It's going to you know, revealing all these different new exciting product types, consumption lounges, like whatever it may be. Uh, I'm really excited for the ingenuity that's going to come out of New York in terms of the products and, you know, everything on offer. Um, and then lastly, you know, I think that the international story is slowly, finally starting to emerge. Um, you know, Thailand recently legalized cannabis. Countries like India and Nepal are starting to talk about it in their legislatures. And so, the idea of this being an international economic opportunity is super fascinating. And I'd love to, you know, hopefully have the budget someday to, to go to some of those places and explore what's going on there. Um, that's a really exciting prospect for me. Um, and then the last piece I think is just that like, you know, again, I'll hammer home the point that like 
you know, my faith in this is not shaken. Um, despite everything I report on, despite sometimes having a negative bent, like this is the most exciting place for me to be. And I would love to continue to roll up my sleeves and work in it and report on it every single day. Um, you know, I'm here, I'm excited about it. And, uh, yeah, would hope all your listeners would, would follow along with the journey. Well, we will definitely encourage everyone to follow Jeremy Burke uh, at cultivated.news or follow him on Twitter at JF Burke, J-F-B-E-R-K-E. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us today. This was really fun. Yeah, thank you both. That was awesome. Our thanks again to Jeremy Burke, one of our favorite cannabis journalists and the founder of the Cultivated Newsletter uh, for joining us today. You can check out his work at cultivated.news and follow him on Twitter at J-F-B-E-R-K-E. That's J-F Burke. As always, thanks for listening. Uh, please find us on Twitter with the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast or drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We love your feedback and your guest ideas. And then please don't forget to subscribe to the Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay. One take. Elizabeth.